0: at performance based hiring learning systems since 2000. So, Lou, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: I'm happy to be here, Tots. Anytime I can chat with real people, I'm excited. So, yeah, for sure. We'll make sure that we have a, this is a real person, right? Tots, you're real. So, I don't want to <laughs> mislead anyone listening. Yeah, for sure. It's not AI
0: generated or something. So, Lou, we had this pre-call on it, and, and you gave me a bit of a challenge or a challenge for this show. And we can talk about that in a second. But I, and obviously, before the show, I, I do research on your material. And one of the things you mentioned but stood out is, why did you write a book on hiring and getting hired in one, one package? Walk me through your thought process there.
1: Well, I wrote three editions of Hire With Your Head, which is how to hire people using a methodology I call performance-based hiring. But more times than not, I mean, let's assume it even sold well 20, 30,000 books, which I think that's it. It might have been 50,000. That's only 50,000 people who would actually read the book, and only 10% are actually going to do it. So we're talking 5,000 managers would actually interview that way. So now you've got 100 million candidates in the United States and another X five times that number around the world. They're going to be interviewed the old-fashioned, silly way. So I said, you know, there is a way that candidates can ensure they're accurately assessed. So I decided, hey, if you, as a candidate, find someone who's actually interviewing this way, you're already set up to be successful. However, more times than not, you won't find a manager interviewing this way. So you have to take, as a candidate, take matters into your own hands. So that's the real reason I did it. The problem is when I approached Wiley to do that book, they didn't want two audiences. They wanted the corporate audience or they wanted the individual reader. Uh, so that's why I had to publish it through another publisher. So I do have the fourth edition of Hire with Your Head coming out, which a candidate could reverse engineer and kind of get the same thing, but the essential guide for hiring and getting hired kind of force feeds that and it's kind of describes it. That was actually very hard to book to write, though, for two audiences because. Uh, how do you say something and how do you say the opposite to somebody else? So that was a bit challenging. So hopefully that's a reasonable answer. It's the best I can give given the short notice. So yeah, yeah, for sure. I think,
0: I think it makes sense because when, when I was going through the material, I think we sometimes get too far on one side of the point of view, and then you kind of flip it and look at it from the candidate's point of view. And it really kind of doesn't allow you to settle in on one position and you just kind of, it seems to reinforce your case on, on what I, I guess the talent scarcity mindset looks like to a high performer.
1: Right. No, no question about it. That's, it's hard. And again, the, the fundamental concept that I have here is work should be defined as a series of performance objectives. And if a candidate uh, build a team of accountants to do an international report Uh, run a small software group to produce this kind of application and have it ready for production in six months. Outcomes. And as long as a candidate, a person can do that work and is motivated to do that work under the set of circumstances, it's being uh, the surrounding circumstances, that person's a viable candidate for that job. However, most managers don't ask about that question. They don't define the work that way. And candidates take jobs based on, oh, it sounds pretty good, it's the right location, a pay package is fine. So there's a lot of this superficial and short-term decision-making that's usually done when people actually make critical career decisions. And that's why the likelihood of being successful and motivated and satisfied in the job is unlikely, it's problematic. So the goal that I have is, hey, I'm going to try to bring candidates and hiring managers alike, but it's really around the work itself. And that's really the theme of performance-based hiring. You have to understand the job on both sides of the table to see if it's meaningful work and the candidate is motivated and competent and excited to do that work.
0: Yeah, for sure. So let's start at the beginning. So the proactive side, which is you talk about the sourcing side of things. What are some of the things that needs to be happened happen there? Because we did a little bit of you know, networking and stuff, but I would say just as it's described in your book, we were quite short on that. Can you walk us through what are the, some of the, the best things you can do in that
1: area? Well, first off, you have to define the job. And I'm going through a number of these cases right now. So, Iris, and I saw something on a Facebook page yesterday or the day before. I think they were looking for SDR, sales development representative. This is a person who goes out and gets leads. And it was a pretty boring job. And and this was a woman who I don't know, but I just was on this group. And she said, can you give me some help in, uh," and she was asking the group for help in defining that work. So I said, well, what's the employee value proposition? Why would a good person want this job? Put that at the top. And in this case, she said, I never even thought of that. This is the first SDR position we're going to have. This person's going to really implement this whole lead development system. I said, well, that's a pretty cool job now. It's not just an SDR with five years experience in this, it actually attracts someone who's interested in that work. So then somebody else, said, can you give us another example of writing a headline? So I just put in this last night, and this was five or 10 years ago, I had a search for a controller in the production in the entertainment industry. The company was making cartoons, and I do a lot, I had done a lot of work in entertainment in Southern California. So I met the people at the company, and I wrote an ad on LinkedIn, it was pretty corny, but it worked. I said, Oscar winning controller. And I, at the end of the post, I said, if you get this job, the president of your company is gonna be thanking you when they get their next Oscar. So that was it. But the first line was, well, the title was Oscar winning controller or director of accounting. So I captured both. But then I said, get out of the numbers and make a difference. So that was the intrinsic motivator. Most accountants in entertainment really just deal with numbers. They never talk to people who make movies and films. And in this case, they would. So I had to have someone who, and literally, I, the way I sourced the candidate, as I went on LinkedIn, I looked at people at the big uh, entertainment companies, Disney, Warner Brothers, Sony, 20th Century Fox, whatever they were at the time. And then I also filtered those people on working at a big eight, accounting firm, not the big four accounting firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers, et cetera. And I found about 10 people. I just sent an email out to them. I said, get out of the numbers and make a difference. Let's talk about it. And I sent them over to the job posting. And I got within 72 hours of taking the assignment, I was interviewing candidates. I mean, it's so the idea is it's a marketing campaign. You have to have a good job. You got to find the right people who would see the job as a career move. That attracts their intrinsic motivator. They're competent to do the work. Obviously, you have that. This way, the hiring manager would likely see the person, and the candidate would likely say, oh, "I'm interested in going there." So it's like pre-qualifying a sales lead. Hiring manager makes a decision: Do so they want to see this candidate? And they will if it's a good candidate. And with the candidate, if they're a good candidate, would they want this job? At least bring the two parties together to talk. So I don't know if that was really the answer to your question, Tats. But that's the idea of sourcing. It's marketing. Let's find people. But you have two buyers, one buyer's a candidate, the other buyer's a hiring manager, and you got to get both of those people on the same page. So that's why, it, in my mind, it really is a dual decision process. And too many companies think it's individual. No, I, I'm the one making the decision. No, that's not true. If you want to hire a good person, they're both making the decision. And that's why when I saw your ad for sales director, for sales director, I said, you're just getting a person who just needs a job, not someone who wants a career move. And I think that's really the key. Yeah. Focus on what's in it for the candidate and then engage in a series of conversations. Spend more time with fewer people as long as they're the right people. And then and convert a stranger into an acquaintance before you make the decision. Otherwise it's just a transaction and it's unlikely I mean it, it'll it'll be successful sometime but I want to be successful all of the time. So you got to do it right that would give a higher probability that you will be successful more times than not.
0: You no, know, that makes a lot of sense. I come from a marketing background, so it makes a lot of sense. And the way that you described the controller role was great because it showed the combination of a interesting tagline, but you didn't lose the fact that what the role was, was which is a controller. Right. So that's one of the questions because I sometimes hear or see people put crazy headlines that don't describe anything about the role. And I've heard that maybe that's not a good idea e- either. What are your thoughts on that?
1: One? Oh, yeah. I mean, if the headline is an attraction piece, but you want to attract the right person. So, but I mean, there's two phases for marketing. In my mind, some people, I tend to write long job postings and long emails. But once I get people attached in the first line, my goal is to just have them read it. And it's gotta be the right person reading it because then if they, oh, this is pretty cool. So then they wanna read the rest of the story. And I tell stories, I don't write job postings. I do tell stories. I say, hey, one of the big challenges we have here is we're doing this, this, and that. We're looking for someone who can take the lead on building that. So when I saw your post, and I'm not, we don't need to get into the details of it, but you're trying to build a, you're gonna try to grow and build your company and the sales director is gonna do that. Well, that's a story about your company. Well, tell that story. So I really like stories. And I remember one, now I'm off because I just remember my best story of all time was we were trying to find a CEO for a big charity in Philadelphia, and we said, "Fast-forward five years." And it was, I think the back-to-the-future movies were just coming out, so we used that theme as the headline: "A CEO: Fast-forward five years." Then it said, "The inner city of Philadelphia would like to thank you for raising 50 million dollars. And here's what you accomplished. And it said, fast forward five years, or so whatever, 2010. So, irrespective of when it was. They said, you took that and you created an anti gang prevention program, created a place where kids could be safe after school, developed an apprentice program for the trades group for all the construction industry going. It was like five things. And then it said, if you want this story to be yours, send us a resume with a short summary of what you've done. Response was overwhelming. It was a story. And the real key was they had to raise $50 million. But if you must be able to raise $50 million, who cares? It's a boring, it's what you do with the 50. I mean, this person was going to meet all the people in Philadelphia. And it was a business development role or a cash development role, getting people to give money, which is fine. But that's, it's what the money was used for. And that's, and we told the story. So it's always the impact the person can make. In my mind, that's what you're really trying to get. What motivates someone to excel and get excited? Because that's what they're going to tell their friends and family why they're taking the job. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Now, you, you did a great job breaking down the different types of candidate pools or the passive and the active. Walk us through some of those segments and how to think about those segments.
1: Well, I basically make this general statement that you can't use a surplus of talent methodology or strategy that's focused on weeding out the week when there isn't a surplus of talent. So that's the overriding theme. Too many people say, oh, we've got 1,000 candidates. There's only four good ones. We've got to spend most of our money eliminating 996. Well, I said, why don't we just find the 15 that are good and don't worry about the 996 that shouldn't have applied? Now, that's easier said than done. But our focus is when you really think about it. So this is where you're getting at. I drew this in the book which I think I gave you a preview of the chart, or maybe it's published, I'm not sure. I said, there's three fundamental talent pools that companies need to hire. The high volume entry level, maybe not the most critical positions, but they're hiring a lot of salespeople, a lot of call center reps, entry-level jobs, and that's a good pool, but they're high volume. That's a different pool than critical staff positions, two to three-year people, mid-managers, accountants, engineers, important salespeople, irrespective and marketing people, whatever it is, technical people and mid-management. Those are critical positions. And then you also have what I call the executive level group. Each of those has a different need. High volume, you want to hire good people, but avoid mistakes. And that's the big strategy. For the critical staff positions, you want to raise the talent bar, get good people motivated, raise the talent bar. And for the executives, you just, you got it. You can't make a mistake. This is existential job to get either a company successful or not. I mean, even your director of sales, Take your company to 3X or keep it the same. I mean, so you got to kind of say, okay, what's the strategy? Then you overlay that with supply, demand. Are there a lot of great people just looking for jobs? It's never been that way. I've been doing this a lot of years. I've never sound, found that. Maybe for when you're hiring out of college, yes, they're good people, and you got to figure it out a little differently. But when you're starting to take three to four-year professional person and above, the best people, everyone already knows they're the best people. So you got to work hard to find them and uh, recruit them and attract them and get them hired. So that's where I said the three strategies are. You can use the concept of great marketing, great stories, great advertising for all three groups, but obviously for high volume, you can't be as personal as you can uh, hiring an engineer, sales manager, any kind of bid management or executive. In that case, you got to spend a lot of time with these people there. They're going to change the direction of your company. And if they're good, they're going to get promoted and build your company. So. So that's the fundamental difference of those three strategies.
0: Yeah, for sure. There's a lot to unpack. One of the things that you, you uh, mentioned in your book was your one, two, three, four, five candidate sort of rating and talking about eliminating twos. And then you also said, you know, you can't have too many fives. You need a mix of three, four and fives. Explain that concept. I found that really fascinating.
1: Well, let's just say first, let me the ranking. A five is an outstanding person, top five percent, top five percent. A four is someone who's outstanding, probably top 20 percent. A three is certainly in the top third. A two is someone at average or below average and a one entry level or incompetent. The idea of no twos. I have this hiring formula for success, which says ability to do the work in relationship to fit drives motivation. And because motivation is so important, we square everybody. That's not true. A lot of good people are exceptional people given the right set of circumstances. But if you get someone who's been a ten-year engineer and you're asking to do three-year-level work, they're not going to be very motivated. So that would be a level two for that job. And it really a level two is make sure the person is motivated to intrinsically motivated to do that work, not just competent to do that work, but motivated to do that work. So in the first Interview, I suggest that managers determine if someone's a three or better. A three meaning ability to do the work, fit, motivated. But the second interview, make sure that person's not a two. Make sure that person's not a two and spend a lot of time. Is this person really want to do that work? It's easy to determine competency, but you really want to understand is this person motivated to do that work under your set of circumstances? That's a much harder interview. It's not as important for the high volume hires. It's not unimportant, but it's not as important, but it's critical for the staff and management and executive level position groups. So that's the no twos. The fives, from a practical standpoint, I have, I've interviewed two to three, maybe 4,000 people. Nobody's ever a five in everything. And it's circumstantial. I'm actually, me personally, I'm not a very good manager. I'm good enough. I'm at above average. But I'm not great. I'm really good at detailed analytics, but I don't like to do it very often. So if you said I was going to do that, for, I mean, so everything is this way. Certain people are great at some stuff, but they're not great at every stuff. And you just got to kind of. But what we like to do is interview people and have everybody assess the factors and argue about is this person a two, three, or four, or five. If you have too many fives, they're going to. Everybody wants to be the boss. And if you now, I tell people. If your job isn't a five, they'll be gone in a year. You want a five person? Well, they're pretty exceptional people. If you, don't, if you give them a level two job or a level three job, they'll be out. So you've got to match their needs with, with your needs. So if everybody's a rock star, you better give them a rock, rock concert that they all can play in and have all the fans. So I think building a team requires, as long as they're not, as long as everyone's motivated to do the work. The truth is, you can. I mean, I'm pretty good at interviewing, but I can't accurately predict it. I can tell if someone's a 3, 4, or 5, and circumstances, sometimes there'll be a 5, sometimes they will be a 4. As long as they're not a 2, and they're in the upper third, you've hired a great team. I mean, you're going to make the playoffs anyway. You're going to win everything. I don't know. I use a lot of sports analogies, well, only because I'm seeing all my teams lose again. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So you talked... You've covered a lot of things about talent scarcity and then, you know, trying to source people from people that have jobs or referrals and all that stuff. But is there a situation where there's someone that isn't in a current role that would be a good candidate? I mean, there is not to overlook anyone in any situation. Are there certain tests to make sure that that candidate is appropriate and that there, there's not something more there that needs to be watched for?
1: Well, the hard part is how do you find that person? So I, as a recruiter and I tend to work, well, I haven't, I don't do recruiting anymore, but when I did it, it was director levels and above yeah. and initially it was staff and mid managers. And then I moved into directors and levels and above and general managers and retained search. But if you get too broad a pool as a recruiter, how do you find a person unless you know that person personally? So at that level, okay. Do I have the right kind of a person? And that becomes a very complicated issue. I as a recruiter don't, I just have to get a good person. I don't need to worry about every person who can do this job. Just If I can find a top third or top 25%, a top 20% person, I've been successful. So then you can say, well, there could be a better person out there. So I don't have time, there's other restraints. I gotta gotta get this done in a month. So then you gotta say, okay, look at the broader picture of, can I get everybody? Now, let me kind of say, if you're a candidate that you think you can do the work, So maybe that's a better way of defining it. So this candidate sees this job posting and thinks he or she can do this work. I would suggest if you think you can do this work, do not apply, particularly unless you're a perfect fit for what's written there because you will be excluded from that. But if you think you can do the work, go on LinkedIn, find the hiring manager, the hiring manager's boss or someone and put a little story together. Hey, I know you're looking for someone to build an app that accomplishes A, B, and C. Well, I built a similar app in a different industry Using slightly different tools, but they're comparable on the software that does A, B, and C. I'd like to talk to somebody about that. Now you've kind of gone through the back door to get interviewed from a candidate perspective. Now, I know that's probably not the answer to your question. There is technology that looks at big, giant pools of candidates and tries to fit them based on their skills they've had, some of their experiences that might not be directly related to the job that, I mean, I'm certainly aware of them. I'm not certainly, and I would certainly know how to interview the person, but I'm not sure that I could help the individual person or make that an easy decision and uh, discuss it in two to three minutes. I don't know if that's an answer to your question. No, it's okay.
0: I think it touched on a certain points. Now, you talked about uh, applicant proactivity. Now, proactivity could seem like a good thing, or in, in some cases, I think you profile situations that- That could be a bad thing, like they need a job or something like that. How should a hiring manager look at that when someone is proactive, reaches out through the organization, maybe jumped on a webinar or something and actually did a three hour training before they showed up? Like, how should we look at that as a hiring uh, manager? I
1: mean, if the candidate doesn't seem over enthused about it or.
0: If they're overly enthused about it, and you can, because you mentioned in some of your books that maybe a high performer may originally not be that interested in the role or whatnot. So what's the balancing point there?
1: Well, when I, as a recruiter, so my perspective is a recruiter. Yeah. My early background isn't, but I am a recruiter. So I, when I find a candidate I think is pretty interesting and most of them are passive, they're not looking, I got to convince them at least hey, this sounds like a reasonable job. Then I, as an intermediary, present that candidate to the hiring manager. And I always tell the hiring manager, this candidate's not an active candidate. I'd just as soon have them be neutral. How could they be excited about a job and they don't know about the job? That's, that doesn't make any sense unless they're desperate. So if they're over, in my personal opinion, if someone's overprepared and does all this work, they're too desperate. I play, don't play hard to get, but just be, play open-minded. So that's the advice I give to candidates. You're too hard to get, you come on too strong, too passive, you come on weak. So but I urge my hiring managers, hey, have a 30, 40 minute exploratory conversation with the candidate just on the phone. I have a script to give them a script, kind of go through their background, see if they're doing work that's comparable to what done, have the hiring manager describe the job and get to see if the candidate's interested. And if both parties are interested in getting serious, then you get a full interview. But I tell hiring managers, don't get so uptight that candidate's not perfectly prepared for the job use that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they are or not, just ignore it. But when you make the offer, make sure they're excited about the job. And what I do when I make an offer, I tell candidates, this is what I tell all candidates, before the offer is made, and I've done this 5,000 times, a lot of times, I tell, forget the money. This is before they know they're going to get an offer, maybe even have an offer. I say, forget the money. Do you want this job? Tell me why. Put the money in the parking lot. And if you can't tell me why you want this job, the offer is going to be retracted or you're not going to get one. It's never about the money. If they emphasize the money and how much they're going to get in this, forget it. I want you to tell me why you want this job. And it's got to be clear. The size of the projects, the team, the growth opportunity, why this is a satisfying job for you and why this will put you on a better career path. And if that candidate can't the clear that, understand it, they don't have enough information to say yes or no. And me as a recruiter says, no, nope, you're not getting a job it's too soon. Now they still might get it, but I want to do more due diligence. So I tell all candidates that, hey, you got to f- understand you're making a strategic decision. Don't use the facts you get on the start date as the dominant criteria you decide to say yes or no. And nothing, It has no value. What you get on the start date, I don't care if you get a 20% increase. It has nothing to do with a month later if you're just satisfied with the job. And I ask candidates, tell me about your most satisfying role you've ever had in your whole career. Was it because of the money or because of something else? And it's never the money, even for sales rep. Well, that's not true. It's not sometimes, most of the time, it's not the money, but most of the time, it's actual work that they're doing. So I said, well, let's match to that. And that's part of the, the whole process here. It's on both sides of the table. I tell candidates, be open-minded enough and never say no to a recruiter unless the job clearly isn't a career move. But most candidates, when they say, hey, I'll talk to you, what's the money? It nothing to do with the money. If it's a career move, or now let's let's see if it's a career move before we talk about the money. Then we'll see if the money fits. Yeah. So I yeah. always try to put money as it's not unimportant, but it's not the most important because a year from now you'll be more, making more money than you would, and if you're on the right career move, you'll be growing that at a ten to twenty percent a year mm-hmm. anyway.
0: I get it. The sales role and the right candidate come together, then they expand very quickly, and whatever needs to be done can be right. done. So asking for, for instance, what your current comp structure is and stuff early on might send the conversation in a different direction.
1: Absolutely. no. it's certainly appropriate to talk about when you know the candidates, when the hiring manager is serious, they want to offer you and say, well, can you give me an idea what the comp range is? But don't do that first, because that just says that you're kind of short-term focused. But certainly, comp is not an unimportant conversation, but there's a point in time when it has to be put into the conversation. Sure. That's probably further along after the value proposition is clearly
0: established. Yep. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. That is great. So I guess you talk about the offer phase. When you're going through the offer phase, is there, is there any tips or, or things that you need to make sure and consider in terms of etiquette or
1: anything there? Are you talking about it from the hiring manager standpoint or the candidate standpoint? Pick a side. Pick a side. How do you, well, how let me do you kind want to go through it? it this way. So let me okay. tell a story. Let me end this podcast with a story. And this yes. happened 30 years ago. Okay. I was a contingency recruiter, meaning I only get paid at the time, if a candidate accepted the offer and started, then I would get paid. In this case, a candidate for a plant manager in an electronics firm told me he was going to accept my offer. And a plant manager, and I, fees were not insignificant, but this was a good fee, and I was 100% sure he'd get it. The candidate calls me up on a Wednesday morning. After on Monday, he said, I'm accepting the offer. And he says, Lou, I've got bad news. I'm not taking your offer. And this is, you know, as a sales rep, sales, my deal just fell apart this is my whole income for the whole month. And, it, and I was just crushed. Felt, I mean, I'm almost, this happened 30 plus years ago, and I'm still feeling crushed today, 30 oh, years later. So it really blew my mind. Once I caught my breath and he was, we developed a good relationship. And I said, John, why are you taking this other offer? And he said, well, it's closer to home. I'm making 5% more money. And it's a better title. And then, and I said, what's the company? Tell me a little about the company. And it was an old line electronics manufacturing company in Southern California. And I said to John, I said, John, you've just made a long term strategic career decision using short term information. He said, What do you mean? I said, Everything you've said about why this job is critical is what you get on the start date comp package, title, and closer to home. I said, However, three years, what you do in the next two to three years will affect the rest of your life. Because if you're on a career path that's flat, you're going to, you'll never get out of that. That'll, that'll destine where you're going to be. You're talking about going to an old line manufacturing company using, and that had to be printed circuit, but whatever it was, it was definitely old line. I said, versus going into a state of the art assembly plant, making new state of the art displays in one year, you're going to be on a faster growth track. Than you ever can imagine. Yes. I understand it's less money. I understand it's 15 minutes, but one's a career move. The other is a static move. He said, and I asked him, "Did you accept the offer yet from the other company?" He said, "No, I was going to call him right afterwards." I said, "Can you hold off?" He said, "Yes, I have to based on what you said." He calls me the next morning. Says, "Lou, I couldn't sleep at all last night. My wife and I were just agonizing about what you said. I want to take the offer from your company." He took the offer. Seven months later, he calls. Says, "Lou, I'm so glad I took that offer. And I've just been made to VP Operations for the total plant on the West Coast, and we're now moving all our facilities into China." This was when China became the big manufacturing hub. But the idea is too many candidates make short-term decisions, long-term decisions using short-term information. So that's why I said well, before I close a candidate, I always say, forget the money. Is this the really a job you want? But the idea is compare your jobs short-term, midterm, and long-term, on all factors and make sure they're all balanced. And but candidates would have a propensity to focus on what they get on the start date and make it happen fast because they're disappointed in their current job. I got to get out of the situation I'm in. It's too much short-term thinking when people change jobs, and changing jobs is a long-term career decisions. And don't screw it up is what my advice is. Don't make long-term decisions using short-term information. And I would also say that's from a hiring manager's perspective and candidate's perspective. They should take that one to the bank.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Lou. Great information. I'll have to definitely apply it for our business.
1: Good. Thanks, everybody. Hopefully this is helpful.
0: Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Cats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes, entrepreneurial tips, and more. See you over there.